So tonight we are in Nehemiah 5. I want to begin uh, quoting from a book written by Jim Collins, and you may be thinking, wait a minute, Steve, you did that a couple of weeks ago. You quoted from that book, Good to Great. Yeah, that was a book he wrote, but I want to quote from another book he wrote uh, in the 90s. Not good to great, I want to quote from Built to Last. He gives a comparison between Walt Disney, and you think about when this was written in the 90s, you think about Walt Disney, the corporation, what it stood for, what had been done, and then you think about where it is now, and there is a vast difference. This is what happens. But uh, he's going to do a comparison of Walt Disney versus Columbia Pictures. He says this, Jim Collins, in the case of Walt Disney, and remember this was written in 1994, 1994. In the case of Walt Disney, it is clear that Walt brought immense personal imagination and talent to building Disney. He personally originated many of Disney's best creations, which, by the way, are being canceled now. Isn't that fascinating? But nevertheless, his best, best, Disney's best creations, including Snow White, uh, the character of Mickey Mouse, the Mickey Mouse Club, Disneyland, Epcot Center, by any measure, he was a superb um, time teller, and he has a definition of that we won't go into, storyteller. But even so, in comparison to Harry Cohn, Disney's counterpart at Columbia Pictures, Walt was much, much, much more of a clock builder than a time builder. And I'm not even going to take time to do those definitions. You'll see the difference between the two men. Cohn cultivated his image as a tyrant, keeping a riding whip near his desk and occasionally cracking it for emphasis. And Columbia had the greatest creative turnover of any major studio due largely to Cohn's methods. In other words, he was a lousy leader. An observer of his funeral in 1958 commented that the 1,300 attendees had not come to bid farewell, but to make sure he was actually dead. <laughs> we could find no evidence of any concern for employees by Cohn. He didn't care about his people. We could find no evidence of any concern for employees by Cohn, nor could we find any evidence that he took steps to develop the long-term capabilities or distinct self-identity of Columbia Pictures as an institution. The evidence suggests that Cone cared first and foremost about becoming a movie mogul and, a, and wielding immense personal power in Hollywood. He actually became the first person in Hollywood to assume the title of president and producer and cared little or not at all about the qualities and identity of the Columbia Pictures Company that might endure beyond his lifetime. That's why nobody thinks about it. Walt Disney, on the other hand, spent the day before he died in a hospital bed thinking out loud about how best to develop Disney World in Florida. Walt would die but Disney's ability to make people happy, to bring joy to children, to create laughter and tears would not die. Throughout his life, Walt paid great attention. He actually paid greater attention to developing his company and its capabilities than did Cone over at Columbia. In the late 1920s, Walt Disney paid his creative staff more than he paid himself. That's unique. In the early 1930s, he established art classes for all animators, installed a small zoo on location to provide live creatures to help improve their ability to draw animals, invented new animation team processes such as storyboards, and continually invested in the most advanced animation technologies. In the late 1930s, he installed the first generous salary bonus system in the cartoon industry to att attract and reward good talent. In the 1950s, he instituted employee You Create Happiness training programs. And in the 60s, he developed Disney University to orient, train, and indoctrinate Disney employees. Harry Cohn took none of these steps. That's why you never heard of Harry Cohn. And if you heard of him, you really didn't care, and you're probably glad the guy was dead, which is why the people showed up at his funeral. 
So there's, uh, they're both leaders. They're both Hollywood moguls. But there was a tremendous difference in the kind of men that they were and in the leadership that they exhibited. In Nehemiah 5, we're going to see into the heart of Nehemiah and the kind of leader that he was because he's facing a challenge in Nehemiah 5 that really he hasn't faced up until this point. Uh, we know as Christians and followers of Christ that we're in spiritual warfare. So we can expect the attacks from outside the church. What's tough is when the attacks come from inside. Those are the ones that are the most difficult. Those are the ones that are most painful. Those are the ones that uh, are the most devastating. They're working on this wall. They're halfway done with this wall. They've got to get it done. They've had the external. They've had the opposition from outside the wall. But now, in Nehemiah 5, they're going to hit, get hit with opposition from the inside. And it, it immediately creates chaos and causes incredible difficulty for the Jewish people. And the ones causing the difficulty for the Jewish people building the wall are other Jewish people who are part of the covenant and should know better. But they are absolutely devastating and destroying their brothers. And it's a serious situation. So, and really, the, the issues at work here that are, um, that are alive and well inside the camp are greed and corruption. You, uh, we expect that in the world. You expect that in business. You definitely expect it in politics. It's kind of disheartening when it happens inside our walls, when it happens among the Jews in the Old Testament when it happens within the church, but it happens. So number one, we've got the four aspects of greed and corruption in verses one through five. Secondly, this is real simple. In verses six and seven, Nehemiah gets hot and then he cools off. We'll get to that in a minute. When you get hot, when you get angry, you don't want to stay hot because even more difficulties can arise. So secondly, he gets hot and then he cools off. Then thirdly, Nehemiah gets hold of himself and confronts the guilty. He gets hold of himself and confronts the guilty. That's verses 7 to 13. And then number four is Nehemiah's personal integrity and example. So let's go back to number one, the four aspects of greed and corruption that was causing this crisis internally, inside the walls, keeping them from doing their work and completing the task. Now, there was a great outcry of the people. I'm in mean, 5.1. There was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. So this is internal. Four, and here's going to be your first reason in, number one, in verse 2. For there were those who said, we, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. Here's the first aspect. There was a shortage of food. Why was there a shortage of food? Because instead of working their crops, they're trying to build this wall. And the crops are being neglected, so therefore, all of a sudden, you got a shortage of food. That's a big deal. They can't feed their families. Uh, the next problem is in verse 3. There were others who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. So now, it's, for some, it's so bad, they're mortgaging their land, their houses, their real estate uh, in order to get food. They're having to take out, taking out home equity loans. They're having to do second mortgages. They're going deeper and deeper in the hole because of their fellow Jews, not their enemies. And then in verse 4, you got the third problem, the third aspect of the greed and corruption, which is in verse 4. Also, that there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now you've got some who are borrowing from wealthy Jews 
to pay their property taxes. This is a downward spiral. Verse 5, Now the flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters are forced into bondage already, and we are helpless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. They're actually having to sell children as slaves, older children, in order to pay off the debts that have been accumulated to their Jewish brothers. So in other words, Jews were taking advantage financially of other Jews, and it was a hopeless situation. Now we get to the second point of the outline, verses 6 and 7, where Nehemiah gets hot. Why does he get hot? Look at verse 6. Then I was very angry when I had heard their outcry in these words. You ever get very angry? Um, David Pallison wrote a book uh, several years ago, and since he published the book, he's gone on to be with the Lord. But the book is called uh, Good and Angry. Subtitle, Redeeming Anger, Irritation, Complaining, and Bitterness. I bought the book, not that I would ever need this book, <laughs> but I, I had some friends I thought might benefit from it. Paulison knew the scriptures, and he knew the hearts of men. One of the things he says in here is that we get angry when something isn't right. That's just not right. And there are a lot of things that just aren't right. But you got to be careful with anger because there's a good kind of anger and there is a bad kind of anger. There is a righteous kind of anger that is uh, throughout the scripture. And I think what Nehemiah has here in verse 6 then I was very angry. He should have been angry. It's not right that the, the Jews, who are God's people, who are to look out for one another, who are to care for one another, who are to love one another, who are the people of God, who have a covenant with the Lord God Almighty, uh, it's not right that they should be taking advantage of you know, a large segment, the, the wealthy ones, are taking advantage of a large segment of the population. And, and I mean, selling kids into slavery? I mean, come on, this is, that's just flat out wrong. So he gets angry. I think it's a righteous anger because it, was, it, it violated what God had said. You, you'll see this from time to time in Scripture. Uh, flip over to Psalm 139. One of the great psalms talks about the greatness of God, the majesty of God, the holiness of God, the character of God, the sovereignty of God, and then switches in verse 13 from the person of God and the greatness of God, and then David talks about the fact that God formed him in his mother's womb and that God has a plan for his life, and it's a, it's a remarkable psalm. It's just, it's powerful. Uh, if you look at uh, verse 17 of Psalm 139, David says, How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Now watch this. Look at this pivot. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. What the heck happened? I mean, there's nothing in here prior to this like that. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. For they speak against you wickedly. And your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. That's what you call ticked off. That's what you call angry. But... I, 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 I believe it's righteous anger. He is defending the character of God. He loves God. He hates the enemies of God. 
who are trying to stand in the way of God's purposes and God's tasks. And uh, that's his reaction. But you've got to be careful with anger. Because hot anger can do a lot of damage. Not only to those around you, but can do a lot of damage to you. So when you got that righteous anger, when you got hot anger, what has to happen is you got to get a grip. And you got to cool down. And in the next verse, you see him catching himself. Because he goes from, I hate them with utmost hatred, they have become my enemies. Here's the next line. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. Anger that's out of control can be extremely hurtful. Can do a lot of damage. So he's asking God to check him. He's asking for the control of the spirit to evaluate what's in his heart. That, that's what's going on, I think, in Nehemiah 5. In fact, I, I more than think it is what's going on in Nehemiah 5 because he states it in verse 6. Then I was very angry when I had heard their outcry with these words, which takes us right to the, the third point tonight. Nehemiah then gets a hold of himself in verse 7. And then now he's going to confront the guilty. But before he confronted, he had to get a hold of himself. He had to uh, cool down. Then I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. He was very angry. And then what does he do? I consulted with myself. That's very wise. Hold on here. Don't go off half cock. You've done that before. You don't want to do it again. Lord, help me here. Oh, Lord, search me. Try my heart here. I need your wisdom. Something needs to be done here. But I need, uh, I need clarity from you on what to do. Just let me tap it down here. I want to be wise. I need your wisdom. This has to be addressed. But not out of my flesh and not out of my sin. I want it to come from you. See, that's the process. So he gets a hold of himself, and then what does he do? He does what leaders do. Um, many of us in here knew Howard Hendricks, great professor for years at Dallas Seminary. What a teacher, what a communicator. I remember um, uh, it was decades ago he did a series on leadership. Uh, this was a long time ago. And I remember it was a very rainy night in Portland, which is not unusual, but I'm listening to Howard Hendricks talk on leadership. And he said, let me give you a definition of leadership. I've read a lot of definitions on leadership. This is the best definition I've ever heard on leadership. And it comes from Howard Hendricks. Hendricks said, a leader, you, might, you guys might want to write this down. He said, a leader is someone who leads. That's so simple, it's profound. Years ago, when we first moved to Dallas, I was at a, some kind of luncheon, Christian get-together, business guys. And, you know, didn't know anybody at the table. Guys are saying hi, introducing themselves. And on the way out, this guy, one guy, you know, others were passing out business cards, and this guy gave me his card and said thanks, and didn't know the guy at all. But um, later I looked at his card. It was the single most impressive business card I'd ever seen in my life. He had more academic degrees on that card. I'd never seen so many academic degrees. B.A., B.S., M.A., M.A., B.S., D-men, T-H-D, P-H-D. The card said over, you flip it over, <laughs> get on the other side. He had all these academic degrees. And then, but he also had 
all these titles. The guy was chairman, he was founder, he was CEO, he was CFO, he was managing partner. He was da, 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 da. I thought, I've never seen anything like this. And what we tend to do is, we think if someone, here's what we think in modern America. We think if someone has a handful, a lot of academic degrees, we think that makes them a leader. Academic degrees don't make you a leader. It just means uh, you got in and you figured out the system and um, you know how to test and, you know, you did it. And here and there you might read a book and actually find out something, usually on your own in the library, collateral reading that you're not supposed to read, you'll stumble on knowledge. But. Uh, just because you have academic degrees, that doesn't make you a leader. Just because you have titles, that doesn't make you a leader. You're only a leader, Hendrick said, if you lead. That's the acid test of a leader. And to be a leader, you don't need an academic degree. And to be a leader, you don't need a title. You just need to do the next right thing. That's what leaders do. That's what Christian leaders do. They're not passive, they take initiative. So if the next right thing, spiritually speaking, you're in your home, you're with your wife, you're with your family, and the next right thing is that trash bin is full, the next right thing is to tie it up and take it out and, and throw it in the can, that's what leaders do. It's just doing the next right thing. If the next right thing is your wife's weeping and sad, the next right thing is to hold her hand and just to pray with her for a minute. Lord, we, we come to you. We're broken. We don't even know how to pray, but we put this in your hands, Lord Jesus. Amen. That's spiritual leadership. You don't have to pray for an hour. You just pray. It's the next right thing. Is it always clear? Not always, but normally it'll get clear pretty, pretty quickly. So then what do you do? You're not passive, you don't run away from it, you do it. And that's what this guy did. Verse six, then I was very angry when I heard the outcry, their outcry in these words, these Jewish brethren who were in financial difficulty, their kids were in slavery, they were mortgaging everything, having, I mean, they're going bankrupt. And they're getting in so deep, they're without hope of ever recovering financially. So no one's of a mind to finish the wall. We're just all messed up because some guys at the top who have done well are going to make money off the crisis because, um, quite frankly, they're greedy and they're corrupt. So what do I do? I, can, I consulted with myself and undoubtedly with the Lord and contended, he contended with the nobles and the rulers and said to them, now how many guys would say, well, the next right step is to contend with the nobles and the rulers. Well, I don't want to get involved. See, that's passivity. But sometimes you're the guy to get involved. And that's exactly what you need to do. Someone needs to deal with this. And so he does. I consulted with myself and contended with the nobles and the rulers and said to them, you are exacting usury each from his brother. No, that was serious. Why was it serious? Well, if you look at Exodus 22, and this is throughout the Old Testament, if you look at Exodus 22, 25, the Lord said, through Moses, if you lend money to my people, that's the Jews, to the poor among you, you are not to act as a creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest. It was fine for a Jew to lend money to another Jew, but you couldn't profit from it because he's your brother. And you're in the family of the Lord, and we take care of one another. We bear one another's burdens. So you can loan if someone's in trouble, but you don't exact interest. They were going beyond exacting interest, and they were exacting usury, exorbitant. 
interest. I mean, it was like dealing with uh, the Chicago mob here. I mean, it's a thousand percent a day kind of thing. I mean, the text doesn't say that, but it was exorbitant. And when it's that kind of interest, you can never pull out of it. You're finished. There's no recovery ever. What he does is the guys that are pulling this off and benefiting, he takes them on. And what he does is he, um, he first deals with them privately. If you look again at Nehemiah 5, verse 7, I contended with the nobles and the rulers and said to them, you are exacting usury, each from his brother. Next sentence. Therefore, I held a great assembly against them. So, you got two things going on here. Apparently, first he talks to them privately. And then he says, then I held a great assembly. So then he brings everybody together. This kind of, this, this follows what the New Testament says. Matthew 18, 15, familiar with these words. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. And this is a good thing to do. This is how the body of Christ is supposed to operate. It's, it's, it's not your full-time profession, but when you have a brother in Christ, someone you're close to, you have a relationship, and something comes up and you're aware of their sin, at a certain point, you have an obligation to talk with them. Why? Because you love them. I was reading this week about a situation where a guy who was an elder in a church found out that a longtime friend in the church, guy committed to Christ, committed to his wife, his kids, all that, you know. He found out the guy had just left his wife and was moving in with another woman. And he was absolutely stunned and he was shocked. And he's, hey, he can't even believe this. And he's just processing it. And he decided to call the guy. This can't even be true. So he calls the guy's cell phone, the guy answers. He's, you know, hey, Bob, Tom, hey, I got to ask you something. I just heard, have you left your wife? The guy goes, yeah. And, and you're, you're, you're moving in with this other woman? The guy said, yeah. He said, are you there now? He goes, yeah. He said, get out of there. Now, get out. You have no business being there. You're, you're a better man than this. Get out of there now. Walk out. And I'll meet you for coffee. And the guy did. And when they sat down for coffee, his friend said to him, man, it was really providential that you called because I'm over there and I'm feeling like a fish out of water and I'm thinking, what am I doing here? But I really wasn't sure how to get out of it and then you, it was you. And you said, get out, so I did. <laughs> I mean, I love that. That's just basic Christianity. That's bearing one another's burdens and thus fulfilling the law of Christ. Man, I'm so glad you called. I, was, I, mean, I, don't, know, I don't know what I was thinking. I could have had a V8. <laughs> I could have followed Christ. But I needed some help. Because sometimes we get sidetracked and sometimes we get deceived. And sometimes we listen to wrong voices. And sometimes we just screw up. So what do I need? I need someone who loves me enough to come along and tell me the truth. Because they're for me. They're not against me. They're on my team. If your brother sins, Matthew 18, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. How often, though, has this happened? And we say, well, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't want to get involved. I don't want to get into this. I don't, you need to. And if, if there's a relationship there and the Lord keeps putting it on your heart, you need, you need to take the step. 
But if he doesn't listen to you, take one or two more. If he just says, yeah, you know, don't bother me, you don't just say, oh, okay, fine, you know, you do your thing, I'll do mine, if by chance, you know. You don't do that 60s thing. What you do is you go and get another guy who knows him, and you get another guy, and what do you do? Well, you take one or two with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Something that's interesting, when you study the Bible, context is very important. You ever heard the verse, and it's often quoted when there's a prayer meeting and nobody shows up, or there's some kind of Bible study and nobody shows up, and someone will pray the verse, well, Lord, you said where two or three are gathered together in my name. You're in our midst. We thank you that you're here with us tonight. You know what the context of that verse is? Right here. Matthew 18. Look at verse 19. Again, I say to you that if two or three on earth agree about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them and my Father, by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, not for prayer meeting, not for Bible study, contextually, where two or three are gathered together in my name to bring back a wandering brother, there am I in the midst. So you see, you're not going by yourself. The Lord goes with you. You're doing his work. So in Good and Angry, David Pollison has a list of two different ways of expressing displeasure with what is happening. And just prior to this in this book, he's got, to, he's got a, a discussion of the relationship between Winston Churchill and Joseph Stalin in World War II. Working with Stalin was like working with the devil, because he was a devil. But Roosevelt and Churchill had to have Stalin because of how the Europe was configured. And they, they had to bring down Hitler. They had to. Now, Stalin actually was, his numbers were probably greater, were not probably, were greater in terms of mass murder than Hitler's. But at the time, that wasn't necessarily known to what degree. Even if they knew it, they had to have him. And Paulison does a, he quotes some of the dispatches between Churchill and Stalin. And, you know, Churchill could be pretty abrupt. He was quick. You, you didn't want to get into a duel verbally with Churchill. You, you know some of his famous ones. He had, he was at that very, you know, formal dinner, seat of the cross from Lady Astor, who was his sworn enemy. And in the middle of this dinner, she said with great dignity, Mr. Churchill, if you were my husband, I believe I would poison your tea. And without missing a beat, Churchill said, my dear lady, if you were my wife, I would drink it. <laughs> Churchill was quick, but he was very careful with his words, with Stalin. He actually used, and Paulison shows this, biblical principles of confrontation in dealing with Stalin. Churchill knew scripture. He won awards in scripture memory. So Paulison gives, uh, he has two lists. And two options. So list one, he has rebuke. That's a biblical word. Or on list two, the option is to attack. Biblically, you don't attack, but you do rebuke. Uh, second word, reprove, but the other list has criticize. Uh, the third word on list one is admonish. 
on the other list, it's accused. So you go in attacking, criticizing, accusing, what kind of response you think you're going to get? But if you go in a rebuke, reprove, admonish, here's another word, exhort. And the opposite of that on list two is moralize. The next word, the next good word is confront. And the word across the page on the other list is condemn. The next term would be judge fairly. The wrong phrase on the next list, the other list, is be judgmental. The next good word is warn. The wrong word on the other list is threaten. The next phrase is talk directly. On the other side of the page, on the wrong list, it's talk aggressively. The next right phrase is righteous indignation. The wrong mindset is self-righteous hostility. And you, you, you see the difference. All of those words on list one are biblical words that convey an attitude and an approach. And those are the words that Churchill brought to bear as he communicated with Stalin trying to keep that coalition together. So he goes to them in private, and I take from this that it didn't go real well because now he's got to take them into the public assembly. You guys still with me on this? You know, Scripture interprets Scripture. There's a method here. There's a methodology. When all else fails, read the directions because we're all going to encounter things like this in our sphere of influence. Are we not? Yeah, we are. And sometimes we're the guy, we're the Nehemiah in the situation. So what I want to do is just follow this to a T, what the Lord says. Because I want the Lord to work, and I want him to bless it, and I want him to repair the walls that are busted up. The end of verse 7, he says, Therefore I held a great assembly against them. Then he says in 8, He's, uh, he's going to get direct. I said to them, we, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now would you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? Then they were silent and could not find a word to say because they were guilty. Verse 9, again I said, the thing which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? Should you not fear the Lord here and do what is right? The nations are watching this. And then he says in 10, And likewise, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. This is interesting. So now you find out that he's involved. He and his brothers are loaning money to those who are in difficulty, but without interest, without usury. So then he says to them, he said, basically what he's saying is, I'm not asking you to do anything that I don't do. This guy was not a governor of a state in the United States who shuts down every vineyard in Northern California except the one he owns. And we could use a hundred different illustrations that we've seen over the last year. Nehemiah didn't do that. He was helping people out without charging interest. Please, he says at the end of 10, please let us leave off this usury. Now, he's ramping up now. Look at verse 11. He, uh, I love this. <laughs> he says, please give back to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses, also the hundredth part of the money and of the grain, the new wine, and the oil, which you are exacting from them. Give back to them this very day. Don't call a committee together. Don't call for hearings that go on for months and months and months and investigations. Do it 
now. It's the right thing to do. Knock this off and clean it up and obey the Lord. We cannot continue with this because we're not doing the work that God has called us to do. Stop the sin. Now, today, just give it back to him. That's called leadership. Twelve, here's their response. Then they said, and remember, this is public. Everybody's watching this. We will give it back and will require nothing from them and we will do exactly as you say. Okay. <laughs> and then what does he do? This is great, I love this. So I called the priests and took an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. He wasn't taking these guys at their word because their word was pretty much worthless. Oh, you guys are gonna do this? Great, let's call the priest. We'll take your oath before God. I also, 13, shook out the front of my garment and said, thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise, even thus may he be shaken and emptied. In other words, may God empty out everything that you have if you do not fulfill what you have just said before him. And all the assembly said, amen. And they praised the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. There you go. That's called leadership. And it was taken care of, it was fixed, it was dealt with. You don't need to string this stuff out. You just deal with it. It was swift. It, uh, there were consequences, there were repercussions. I mean, that's, that's how you deal with children. Deal with it and move on. And let's get our work done. Everybody wins in a deal like that. Is this practical or what? It's amazingly practical. Now, Nehemiah's example and in integrity is the fourth point. And we see it right here in verse 14. Moreover, from the day that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes for 12 years, neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. So, you know, he was running the country, he was running Jerusalem, he was running this project, and he was paid, and there were allowances, and there were perks that were given. But for some reason, for all these years, neither Nehemiah nor his kinsmen took the governor's food allowance. It was legitimate to do so, but he didn't do it. Why not? Well, the former governors did. Look at 15. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine, besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants dominated the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. In other words, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to use the power. I'm not going to become a tyrant. I'm not going to cripple people and their families and keep them from providing for their own just so I can live with more stuff. I've got enough stuff. I'm good. So there was an integrity. You, you, you looked at his life, you examined his life, and all the pieces fit. What, what, this is so powerful. This is leadership. This is Christian leadership. It's leadership, period. John Gardner wrote on leadership and was part of past administrations and in one of his little booklets on leadership, he was teaching at Yale or Harvard or somewhere and had a question and answer time and one of the brilliant students said, sir, I have a question. He said, how does a leader, maybe you could just sum up for us, how does a leader gain trust? And Gardner said, try being trustworthy. There you go. That's real simple. I, you shouldn't even be asking that question at this university. But you see, you're at this university, and they specialize in knowledge, and they don't know a thing about wisdom because they ignore the wisdom of God. They're all about the wisdom of men. But the wisdom of man is foolishness. It's not about your IQ. 
By the way, that was given to you. No reason to brag about it. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what have you, what do you have that you have not received? So if you've got, you do well in the SAT and all that stuff, great. If you're good at math, great. How'd you get good at math? God made you good at math. Can you do advanced calculus? Great. I can't even spell it. <laughs> if you can, how come you're good at it? God gave you the ability when you were in your mother's womb. What do you have that you have not received? It's all a gift. Whatever you've got, whatever you live off, however you make a living, you work with your hands, you're a fine craftsman, you can take wood and you can make beautiful stuff out of it. I mean, that's a gift. Guys in the Bible were filled with the Holy Spirit to do that. That's a gift from God to be a fine craftsman. But it all comes from the Lord. Oh, my kids are... They're brilliant. They scored out at the 99th percentile. Great. How are they doing on wisdom? You could put a microscope on this guy, and it all added up. Paul told Timothy, watch over your teaching and your life. The, the life you live should underscore the teaching. Verse 16. I also applied myself to the work on the wall. We did not buy any land. Why didn't you buy any land? This was a great time to buy land because people had to mortgage their land in order to pay their property taxes. Yeah, but he wasn't going to do that. Because that's the wrong way before the Lord to buy land. He wasn't going to compromise. That didn't honor the Lord. That wasn't right for those people. So he wasn't going to be a part of it. Well, long term, it's a great financial decision. There's more to life than great financial decisions. There are right decisions. There are godly decisions. If all you want to do is get rich, 1 Timothy 6 says, you'll fall into a snare and a trap and a temptation that has ruined many a man. God blesses people with wealth, but he tests them along the way. And he tests their hearts. Moreover, verse 17, there were at my table 150 Jews and officials besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. So this is how they did it back then. You know, you fed all these officials and all these guys, the bureaucrats and everything. It's how it worked. Now that which was prepared for each day was one ox, six choice sheep. Also birds were prepared for me, and once in 10 days, all sorts of wine were furnished in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the governor's food allowance because the servitude was heavy on this people. So he just paid for it out of his own pocket. He was blessed. See, instead of greed, you see generosity. In, in, instead of corruption, you see compassion. Uh, that's, that's integrity, that's congruency. And then he says, remember me, O God, for good, according to all I have done for this people. So, um, this past week, as I finish, a uh, case could be made that maybe the greatest theologian of this generation has been R.C. Sproul. Passed away in 2017. He, uh, new biography on Sproul written by Stephen Nichols. It's so well written. It's, it's so good, I'm going to read it again. What a story. But uh, right at the end of the book, he mentions that uh, Sproul died in December of 2017. In November... The ministry was putting on an event at a hotel in Orlando. And that same weekend, it turned out that Ravi Zacharias, his ministry, was putting on an event in Orlando at the same hotel, same weekend. And so just a paragraph in passing that the two men met and briefly chatted and then went to their events. Um, Sproul died the next month. And now this book has come, on, come out on his life. 
and it's a testimony of the goodness of God. And he was a guy that um, he was clean. I mean, he was a sinner like we all are, but no major scandals. His wife, he met his wife in kindergarten. She was an older woman. She was in first grade. And he was faithful to her until the day that he died. And I'm reading this. And as I'm reading it, I just read earlier that day that Ravi Zacharias, because of his sexual immorality that had been hidden for years and years and years and years and years and years, no repentance, no turning away from sin, that Ravi Zacharias, possibly the greatest apologist of our generation, his ministry had just erased, and his board is pretty much comprised of his family, his own family erased his name from the website. And they erased his content. Because you see, Paul told Timothy, watch over your teaching and your life. Sproul watched over his teaching and his life. Zacharias negated his teaching with his life to the point that his own family has erased him. I want to pay attention to that. Let's pray together. Father, we are um, your people and the sheep of your pasture. We're all sinners. We still have a sin nature. We have fallen short, but we've been redeemed. Uh, help us to watch our lives. Help us to watch our integrity. Help us to watch our hearts. It's the most important thing. Above all else, guard your heart. For flow, from it flows the wellsprings of life. Help us to walk closely with you and with those who love you. And Lord, we would like to be used. We desire to be used. And we're in different spheres of influence and we have different responsibilities and different callings. But may we follow the example of this man, this humble man. This, uh, he was a humble man. He wasn't in it for himself. He wasn't in it for glory. He just wanted to honor you and do the right thing. That's our prayer tonight. Thank you that if we repent and turn from our sin, there's forgiveness in Christ. Keep us from having hard hearts. Keep our hearts tender before you and quick to confess sin. No secrets. To bring it all out in the open. What's in the darkness to bring it into the light of Jesus and to be forgiven thoroughly and completely so that we can be used. What a hope. What a gift in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.